think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love. It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die. Was there a bit of fandom for you when it came on? Oh, huge. Not- and I did not try to hide. <laughs> did not try to hide at all. Out of the Box with Serge Negus on FBI. Sydney music and culture news. If you missed anything she played, you can head to fbiradio.com to catch up on mornings or any other program here on FBI. Now, I wonder how much you know about the social political issues that face Colombia. Obviously, you'd know about Pablo Escobar, but do you know about any of the other drug cartels, the guerrillas or the paramilitary groups that have wreaked havoc in the country for decades? Well, my guest on Out of the Box today has spent years in Colombia and Latin America working as a journalist and a human rights activist. She's interviewed people from all different facets. She's interviewed the drug dealers, she's interviewed the paramilitary groups, the guerrillas, all of it. And she's witnessed a lot of the horror that goes along with that. The crime, the kidnappings, the torture, the murder, all of the mass killings. It's quite insane. Her name is Kelly Brooke Nichols and she's drawn on six years of working in Colombia to write a novel regarding its lengthy drug war. The book is fiction. But the stories within it are pulled directly from real-life experiences and interviews that she's done in her time working there. Kelly, thanks for coming on the show. Ah, Thanks, thanks for having me. Now, look, before we get into the nitty-gritty, can you just give us a little bit of a background into when you first went to Latin America and what brought you there, I guess? Yeah, I was 19 um, at university and I saw this ad for doing uh, volunteer work in Costa Rica. And so my best friend and I went, it was three months. I ended up uh, working like in rural Costa Rica. I arrived with no Spanish whatsoever. The first thing I said, I looked up on a, like I tried to say I was excited to be there and I ended up telling them that I was horny to be there, <laughs> which was a bit of a disaster. That is killer. Oh I know, my God. pretty good. It's kind of like what not to do, not to do when you're learning another language. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and then so then I did uh, three months volunteer work in the countryside, loved the people, loved the culture, loved the music, and that was it. Like I was hooked. Um, and then so I got into journalism, and when I was 23, I was like, no, nah, I want to go back to Latin America. So I quit my job in journalism and went and lived in the Amazon. Um, for like six months, and I was working what, with indigenous what tribes were you doing there. there. I was working, so the big oil companies were trying to come into the Amazon and exploit them. And so I got a like, I was volunteering with them doing like um, workshops on the, the impact that it would have. Um, it was really fun. We'd do like football analogies and stuff so people could understand because these big oil companies would just come in, pay money, get some stuff that the communities would um, want, not explain the huge ramifications. Um, and yeah, so we were trying to counter that. It's and amazing. so it was really amazing. Like I lived right in the Amazon beside this Amazon river. I used to wake up with, you know, chickens. I used to sit with the community and in the morning we used to drink ayahuasca, not ayahuasca, um, (laughs) not ayahuasca, no. Coffee in the morning. Uh, Yeah, exactly. That would be like, hello, good morning. No, no, this tea that they had and they used to like ask me to tell my dreams every morning and and they would analyze the dreams and what it meant and that was like how the day started. It was very, very cool. That's awesome. It's culturally so different, isn't it? But I mean, like, and what were were there animals just walking around everywhere, all these incredible animals, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, and I was so paranoid about snakes because there's snakes everywhere. And so um, I was working for this organization that was 16 different communities, so I traveled around a lot. And sometimes, 
like I'd be going down river and they'd be telling they love telling stories the people of um, the indigenous tribes and they'd be telling me stories about like the anacondas and their ability to circle a canoe and confuse the people and then what? <laughs> I was like oh my god I don't know how much it was true, yeah, but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Wow. And I mean, like making that decision to, to quit your job as a journalist, which like, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people who work within the media world feel like being a journalist is enough when it comes to feeling like you're contributing to making the world a better place. But, yeah. you know, making that call to go, nah, I actually need to go further mm. and become a human human rights worker. I mean, like how quickly and easy was that decision to make? I think I'd always like been doing stuff on the side. I just have always cared. And so I was always doing volunteer work. And then I, I went into journalism to make a difference. And I think some journalists do, they absolutely, they do that. But I ended up just feeling like I was just contributing to the problem. I was reporting on issues and I was doing nothing about it. Um, and because I was not senior, I wasn't able to drive my own stories. And I just got really, really frustrated. And um, I think it was after the Bali bombing and all that in focus on terrorism and so forth. I was like, no, nah, I want to be part of the solution. And so I left. And, like, when you did hit the ground there, like, how did you... Was it very quickly that you felt like you were actually making a difference and that you you'd made the right decision, I guess? I mean, yeah, I... Uh I was lucky because I found this volunteer work and it was just incredible and they needed someone who um, who spoke English and who was able to travel and uh, like I was looking at the impact that these oil companies had had in different regions and then documenting it and then going back and, and like um, doing workshops with the community and I think there's somewhat unfortunately of a kind of if an outsider says, which mm. isn't cool but that's just the way it is, so they were you know, using the fact that an outsider was telling them the bad impacts of the oil companies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just think it's a way to start, right? And yeah, anything yeah. you do, if you have the you have the right intention and you just start, and as long as you're led by the community, it wasn't like me going in saying, this is what I think you should do. It was me going in saying, I just want to help you guys. What, what can I do? And these are my skill sets. And yeah. There you go. It's incredibly altruistic. Now, look, but this is a music program. <laughs> and Kelly, we, we've got to get onto the songs. And I like, obviously... Being in Latin America, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of influence culturally in your music choices in that regards, isn't there? So Elvis Crespo, the first song you brought on, I, I can't even pronounce the name properly. So sorry if I say this wrong. It's Suavemente. That was pretty good. Is that all right? It means smooth. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if you said it smoothly. Probably not. But let's tell us about this song and why you brought it on. So it was when I was working in Costa Rica at the end of every day when we were pla when we were working in the field, we used to go to the football field, have some beers, people would play football, and then you'd watch the sunset on this orange field and this was the song that played the most. And they'd everyone would dance merengue and I oh it's just awesome. Such good times. Suavemente besame que quiero sentir tus labios besándome otra vez. Suavemente, besame, que quiero sentir tus labios, besándome otra vez. Suave, besame, besame, suave, besame otra vez. Suave, yo quiero sentir tus labios, suave, besándome otra vez. Suave, besa, besa, besame un poquito. Suave, besa, 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 besame otro ratito. Por 
listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and my guest today is Kelly Brooke Nichols, a human rights activist and author who's written an incredible fictional tale based on her times after living in Colombia. Now, I'm, I'm curious to know, what, what exactly was it like living on the ground? Because a lot of our audience and a lot of myself, we've travelled in these areas, but living there is a whole another thing. What was that actually like? Living in Colombia hmm. now? Um, it was one, I think, that... People who travel the region, when they end up going to Colombia, they're surprised. And so many people I have talked to just fall in love with Colombia. I mean, apart from being a physically beautiful country, it's also the people are just so generous and kind and loving. But at the same time, that's what tourists will see. I was working in human rights. So my experience was constantly kind of flipping between being absolutely shocked at such a deep level, at the level of violence and the type of things, you know, type of torture methods and just heinous things that an, a, a person can do to another because that's what I worked in and that's what I saw all the, all the time. Can, can you tell us like some of these things that you saw and some of the kind of torture methods that you're talking about just so people have an understanding of how brutal it was? Yeah, like um, they... Well, I can give you an example. For my book, A Reluctant Warrior, I actually interviewed one of the um, former paramilitary bosses because uh, I wanted to make the not just the, the protagonist but also the antagonist a realistic character. Mm. And he told, he, it was the strangest interview I've ever done, he told me in such detail about how he first killed someone, but then about, they, they use chainsaws with people when they're, they, when they're alive, there's oh. machetes, um, sexual violence is very high, uh, there's you know, mass graves where bodies are just dumped. I mean, it's pretty hideous stuff. So that said, but then at the other, my experience in Colombia was just being overwhelmed by that. But then at the very next moment, I would always meet people that would blow me away by just like their strength and their generosity and their love and the ability to like stay positive and stay strong and stay open despite all that. It just, it was a constant kind of flowing between the two emotions. And I mean, like on that level, you know, you speak about these horrors that they're able to inflict. I mean, there's some sense to which like they're a value, there's a value for life, a culture and a value for life that is, I guess like, I mean, here we value life so much, but is did you feel like there was a difference in the way we value life to the way in which culturally it's valued in a place like Colombia because of the way they're able to inflict these horrors? No. I, I mean, I've worked in many different places now in my career. I've been in human rights and humanitarian field for 15 years, and you do see, sadly, these kind of things all over the place. But Colombia, because Colombia up until last year had the longest ongoing war in the world, 52 years, very long time. And so what you'll see in Colombia is an ability to bounce back, which is incredible, and an ability to live within violence mm. so like the first time i ever went to colombia there had been an assassination in this community and we went on a trek six hour trek to where the person the leader had been assassinated and the whole way up you would never have an idea what we were doing the people were singing they were telling jokes they were picking fruits and mm. telling me to try them like beautiful vibrant we got there and bang crying shouting rage but just like releasing it not bottling it yeah yeah and it's that ability that they have to live with inside the violence and not lose their sense of joy and stuff. And I don't know if it's maybe it's the same in places like the Middle East with ongoing tension and conflict that people 
people live differently. Because I think there's this idea in the West that, that I guess in these places where there is so much violence that there's a level to which we feel like they've become desensitised to it. But what you're saying is, is that's not the case at all. They've just managed to deal with it in a different way to what we yeah. were. I think that the people that inflict it have absolutely become desensitised. Mm-hmm. Like that interview I told you about with the paramilitary boss. Yeah. It was quite unbelievable about how coldly he and with no emotion he could explain torturing people and yet in the very next breath he would tell me how he was worried that his um, his girlfriend didn't want him to continue doing this and he didn't really want it for his daughter and mm. he could express love towards his daughter and those two emotions could be in one sentence and for me and you know for you that would be utterly strange but they've become so desensitized to the violence, you know. It's insane. And I mean, and for you, like specifically when you were in Colombia itself, I mean, what, what impact did you want to have most when you were there? What was it that you wanted to do? Um, I mean, I, I suppose most wanted to kind of ensure the voice of the people that uh, are often overlooked was heard. So I was working largely with Afro-Colombian people. So people, your listeners might not know, but uh, Colombia actually has the third largest population of African descendants outside the African continent. Wow, there you go. Um, And they're probably the most affected group by the war. Anyway, so I was working a lot with them and just trying to highlight the impact of the war on them and get the government to do what it said it would do, basically. And was that task um, more or less difficult than you thought it was going to be? Uh, I think working in Colombia is always more difficult than you could ever imagine because there's so much bureaucracy and corruption. I mean, the infiltration of the paramilitary groups goes mm. up into the highest echelons of society. Yeah, wow. Um, and there's, like I say, there's also a lot of a lot of incredible people, but you're dealing with kind of corruption power play that you have no idea. It's crazy. It's insane stuff that we're going to get more stuck into soon, but I think it's time for another track. So the second song you brought on for us is Que Bonita Es Esta Vida by Jorge Celedon. Is that right? Muy bien. <laughs> and I, that, I do believe that means um, this life is beautiful, does it? Yeah, how beautiful yeah. is this life? And how beautiful is this life? It's okay. really perfect what we were just talking about because it just encapsulates. And this song basically says it doesn't matter what kind of crap comes, what sort of suffering, if I've got my family and some agua diente and rum, sweet, life is beautiful. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Vamos a borrarme de la línea 
on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus and my guest today is Kelly Brooke Nichols, a human rights activist and author who's got a book out that's an amazing book uh, written about her time, fictionally, but her time in Colombia after a number of years working there um, in the human rights sector. Now, you know, having spent so much time in the country, there are obviously some things that you probably witnessed firsthand that really would have blown you away. I mean, what were some of those things? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them I actually tried to portray through the book. I mean, the book, A Reluctant Warrior, was really me feeling like these issues had to be heard, and I don't want them to just be heard by people that are typically interested in Colombia. I want, like, to reach further, so hence the making it into a thriller. But so some of the things, like, there, um, it was discovered while I was working there, colleagues that I was working with, and this became a huge issue, that the armed forces had this setup where they got um, they got bonuses and trips and so forth for number of dead bodies. Um, Whoa! So guerrilla dead bodies, obviously. Okay, okay. But unfortunately and sickly, what we discovered is that they would actually get like poor kids 
delinquents, but, you know, they couldn't have just, you know, stole a bottle of milk or something ridiculous. Poor kids that they thought no one would miss. They'd offer them work. They'd dress them up as gorillas and kill them and body counts. Wow. And this ended up being a widespread practice throughout the country. And that, to me, was one of the sickest things. I took one of uh, a group with... And the, this one mother really sticks in my mind, and her just showing this photo of her son who was, a, you know, like... 18 or something like I suppose the age of a lot of your listeners and he's just an innocent kid who got into some bad stuff and and so they picked on him they thought no one would miss him because he comes from a poor neighborhood and um yeah dressed up and killed and his mother was there with the photo and she said you know I will not stop until I get justice for my boy and like that really really affected me wow um and do you I mean like for her you know like Will she ever get justice and do they ever get justice? Is that what your work has been involved in? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we were doing there was about justice Mm. because it's a country full of impunity. Mm. Um, And it's so important that the people that commit these crimes realise that they can't. I think we achieved a lot on that specific issue um, Mm. because, you know, like senior generals ended uh, ended up charged. Senior, senior, senior. Um, we got, you know, the head of the army uh, off. Anyway, yeah, so that was quite successful. But in general, it's a country full of impunity, yeah. as unfortunately mm. is the case in many places where I've worked. And and what were some of the other things? Because you were about to mention before I really cut in. <laughs> what yeah, were some no. of the other things? Um, I mean, sexual violence. As a woman, that always affects mm. you, working with victims of sexual violence, and it's very prevalent there. Um And just the way, like, the first chapter of my book shows a scene where the paramilitaries come into a community and take it over, and people think that that's fictional, but that scene is 100% based on on a mixture of different... Like, it's based on reality. And so you just have these situations where people are just living their life in the countryside, and then suddenly the paramilitaries come in with... uh, Or guerrillas... With arms, they and and they kill people. They often have these death lists of people that are so-called allegedly had uh, cooperated with the other group, which could have been, you know, at gunpoint given them um, some money or whatever. And they're taken off. There's lots of, you know, women are used as as sex slaves, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah, and that's happened throughout the country. And then people flee. And then you have that's why. Uh, Colombia has such a huge population of internally displaced people. It's like six million people in wow. the history. And I mean, how did seeing those kind of atrocities impact on you yourself? I think you you become more determined. It depends on your personality, but I think you become more determined that you have that something has to happen about this. And so, when you're working day to day in that, um, you have to fight to kind of have a healthy balance because. Mm. People who work in human rights will tend to kind of be overworking, heavy drinking, smoking, you know, because they're just like, something has to happen. We have to do something about yeah. it. Were there ever moments where you wanted to just completely give up, though, because it just felt all too much? Um, yeah, for sure, for mm-hmm. sure. And there's moments where you just have to not, you know, you have to chill out. You have to, I don't know. Yeah, take a break. <laughs> read a trashy mag or something like that <laughs> or watch a stupid sitcom or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's amazing stuff. Well, look, getting back onto the music, the next song you've got for us is La Vida Es Un Carnival by Celia Cruz. This song, why'd you pick this? And and the translation for that, Life is a Carnival, I mean, in the context of this, like, I'm struggling to understand why you'd want to bring a song on with a, a name like that. Well, this one's more personal. My... um. 
I met my husband when I was working in Colombia, and he's a teacher, and he was also working with IDPs, so people affected by the war. Mm-hmm. And we love this song because it's like, it's, it's that lighthearted, like remember the beauty of life, and, and life is, yeah. And I do think despite, like I said, all the violence, Colombians are really, really good at, at, at remembering that. And plus, we had our whole entire bridal party. We made them all, we forced them all to salsa, including my parents to do (laughs) salsa.
aquellos que solo critican, para aquellos que usan las armas, para aquellos que nos contaminan, para aquellos que hacen la guerra, para aquellos que viven pecando, para aquellos que nos maltratan, para aquellos que nos contagian. Listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio, my name is Serge Negus. My guest today is Kelly Brooke Nichols, a human rights activist and author who's spent a lot of time living in Central America, in particular Colombia, and she's just written a book about that experience. It's fictional, but it is based on reality. Now, I mean, the drugs. Obviously, everyone has heard of Pablo Escobar. Pretty much everyone of our audience would have. Yeah. But, I mean, what is it actually like being on the ground when it comes to the, the drug wars that are in Colombia? Yes, I mean, my book is basically, a Reluctant Warrior is basically showing the impact because people talk about the drugs, they talk mm. about Pablo Escobar and the money and so forth, but what they don't talk enough about is, well, what does that mean on the ground? And what it means is young kids like Jair, who's um, one of the characters in the book who's only 12, being recruited into these illegally armed groups. What it means is women being used and then ultimately killed. It means so many people being killed but I mean so I wanted to show the human side of it but I also wanted to get the drug side of it right so I was really lucky I don't know have you watched Netflix Narcos I watched a little bit of it but not not all of it no okay well I kind of binge watched it I love it <laughs> um, it's very true but um, well it's relatively true <laughs> but anyway um, I worked with the guy who was basically the boss of the main characters of that in real life wow and he was my advisor for all the drug side of the book over several years. Great guy, amazing guy. And so in in the novel, it's um, they're they're building a submarine, like a full-on Russian submarine, to export drugs to the U.S. And you probably are like, mm, yeah, right. But that's actually true. Mm. So when I was working there, they discovered the first full-blown submarine being built in the in the jungle bordering Ecuador <laughs> to be used to export drugs. And we're talking like a 30-meter submarine. Um, and yeah, like the 70% of the world's cocaine comes from Colombia. And the kind of stuff people do, like breast implants full of cocaine, um, submarines, like crazy, crazy stuff. Because the money you're talking about is huge. And I've traveled extensively throughout Colombia. And I've been to a place where it's just wide swaths of, of coca fields. And, you know, I talk to the, and there's always violence wherever there's coca. And mm. I, would talk to the um, to the campesinos and say, why do you do this to yourself? Because it brings violence. And this one guy, I will always remember, he said, look, doctora, which is what they call you, this, I could get $1 for a kilo of bananas or I could get $1,000 for a kilo of coca leaves. What would you do? Yeah. And yeah. Economics, right? Makes sense, really, doesn't it? It's But I mean, wild. unfortunately, then it brings violence. And if people who take cocaine had any idea the shit that goes into that, it's unbelievable. I've been, I've seen it like gasoline, concrete, like multiple chemicals. Concrete. Yeah, 
like and what? you see it when you're when you're in these areas because they they process the coca leaves into a paste and mm. then that paste is then burned blah 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 but you see like these um uh like them going down river with these huge vats of these chemicals that are so obviously for that purpose but all the army that's there have, have been paid off so they just freely take it down just river. letting you go yeah. do you think people would be more put off from doing cocaine in australia if they knew what was going into the drug or if they saw the oh the, my god human, seriously human i think yeah, both both but yeah maybe the first side yeah if they had any idea the level of chemicals that go into that stuff, it's yeah, it's pretty shocking. Wild stuff, and I mean, like also like to, to go back to the kind of um, I guess the paramilitary and the guerrilla side. Uh, can you please explain to us like I guess where these vying groups are coming from and the kind of a, a broad picture of the political situation in Colombia? Because I mean, for a lot of people, it might be a bit confusing understanding where everyone's coming from here. We've yeah. got left and right, but yeah, well, what's yeah. it like there in that regards? So I'll just try to explain it really basically. So like 50 years ago, the the left guerrilla, the FARC, started this, or more than 52 years ago, started this war. And at that time, it was all based on inequality of land rights and the fact that the 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 oligarchy of the country owned such huge percentages of the land and the rural poor had nothing and were forgotten by the country, the government, which is absolutely true and is true to this day. But um, it started that way, but then coca came around in the 80s and then the kind of money that that, that, that implied meant that both groups, the, the FARC and the ELN and the, um, the different uh, so-called left guerrilla groups and also then the right, so-called right paramilitary groups, they're all about the money as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And it ended up being very little about ideology as we would consider left and right, yeah. and far more about about money. I, I mean, you see places where the paramilitaries and the FARC will even, like, you know, reach a deal where we'll control, control this swath of land with this amount of coca and you control that. <laughs> it's about money now. It's yeah. all about money. It's about eco- economies and driven by the fact that 70% of the world's cocaine is produced there. Yeah, it's wild stuff. We'll, we'll get stuck more into that a bit later on. But first, we've got to get to some more music. Yeah, so yeah. the next song you've got for us, you've got a couple of different ones you're going to choose from here. So I'm going to get le- let you pick it. So you've got Mueva Esa Cola Como Todo Una Señora. Yeah, I think we should do that because we should okay. li- lighten it up slightly. And t- what, does that, what does that mean? <laughs> it means, I, don't, I don't know that one. It means <laughs> why not? It means move your bum like a like a sexy lady, basically. Perfect. And right. so basically, this is reggaeton. Colombia is loves its reggaeton, and I've had brought many friends over to Colombia and uh, taken them to clubs there. And the way they dance, like it's yeah, it's pretty hot. And for people who are not used to it, will just be like. Oh my god! Especially <laughs> guys, they can't handle it. They're like, I need some water on my face or something. <laughs> That's so Como 
on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus and my guest today is author and human rights activist Kelly Brooke Nichols. Now, we've spoken about obviously your time in Colombia, but somewhere that really has a special place in your heart is Buenaventura. Tell us why. So Buenaventura was well known um, as like a centre of the violence. It's the major port city in Colombia and so a lot of the imports and exports go through there. Tons of money. But it's also very strategic for the for the drug traffickers, mm. um, and so huge presence of the drug traffickers. And um, so when I first went there, it was in 2007. It was considered like one of the most dangerous places in the country. And I was sent there to to investigate for the organisation I worked on the um, kind of like the violence and so forth. And I remember being taken around by this group of young people who were human rights activists. And they were explaining to me how, like, neighborhood to neighborhood, barrio to barrio, was controlled by one would be controlled by the guerrilla, then the paramilitary, and they'd have these streets, which were ironically named things like Manhattan and San Francisco (laughs) and so forth. And Manhattan was a place that on one side was paramilitary, on the other side was guerrilla. 
And they told me stories of how, like, people who weren't known who accidentally crossed those streets had been killed because they oh. had these what they call domino groups, little, like, groups of young people who are paid by either side to watch who enters and leaves. And anytime anyone who enters and leaves a neighborhood who is not known, it's, it's kind of registered to the big boss. And if it's considered that maybe they're spying on them, then they're taken. And I remember walking down and then pointing down a street to what was called Piedras Canta on this street. And they're saying that's where one of the torture homes were. And there they have, um, and it's well documented. It's not just like a group of kids telling me. It's now being documented multiple times. Um, that they had these uh, torture homes. And one kid I interviewed, he lived not far from one of these, and he he was telling me how he always had these nightmares about the str- the screams that he heard oh, from these places. Whoa. Um, but then, look, I like to always, you know, show both sides. Then on the other side, there's this culture, like the young people there are just amazing because... They, and they're probably the thing that it affected me the most. They were like, I don't want to be part of this, you know, godforsaken war. And they, there's, there's a really huge movement of kind of rap, um, like American-style rap, where they're speaking out. It's their form of speaking out against this crap all around them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the way that the government has, has forgotten them. So there's a really, really strong resistance movement there, um, which is really, really cool. And at the same time, the culture is beautiful, the music, it's right on the water. So it's, again, like everything in Colombia, it's complex, it's beautiful. Well, what are you going to play for us then that's going to sum up Buenaventura? I think we're going to go for Somos Pacificos, which is by Chocking Town. Chocking Town, this was kind of, when I was there, the almost the anthem of the Afro-Colombian people. It's If you look up online and see the video, it's set. that's actually set in Buenaventura. Um, and it's just talking about, you know, we're all one, we're all part of the Pacific. And it's also speaking out against like the way that the Pacific coast is forgotten by the government and the violence and everything. But at the same time, it's the celebration of the culture. Siempre por 
por la sangre colorida por la tierra No hay quien se me pierda con un vínculo familiar que aterra Característico en muchos de nosotros que nos reconozcan Por la mamá y hasta por los rostros Étnicos, estilos que entre todos se ven La forma de caminar, el cabello y hasta por la piel Y dime que me va a decir que no Escucho hablar de San Pacho, mi patrono ayer quitó ea. Donde se ven un pico y juran que fue un beso Donde el manjar al desayuno es plátano con queso Y eso que no te he hablado De buena aventura Donde se baila el currulao Salsa un poco pegado Puerto fiel al pecado Negra grande con gran tumbao Donde se baila guabajo y pasillo Al lado del río con mi prietillo fuerte que antes, llevando el legado a todas partes de forma constante, expresándolo a través de lo cultural, música, arte plástica, danza en general, acento golpeado al hablar, el uno, dos, tres al bailar, después de esto seguro hay muchísimo más, este es el pacífico colombiano, una raza, un sector lleno de hermanas y hermanos, con nuestra bambara y con el caché, venga y lo busque mismo, pape como es, y yeah, es lo que se puede perder, y yeah, pura calentura y You're listening to Out of the Box and FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today on the show has been Kelly Brooke Nichols. She's a human rights activist and author who spent a lot of time living in Colombia and all through Latin America and has written an incredible book based on her experiences there. Um, now, look, you know, beyond you know the historical stuff that we've been talking about, what's it actually like in Colombia now? What is the situation when it comes to you know, the wars on drugs and all the political issues that are happening there? Yeah, I mean, it's not that historical, even though the first time I went there was in 2007 when the violence was way worse. That's when I started living there. But the war actually only ended last year. They signed the peace agreement in November last year. Mm. And even though they've signed a peace agreement, I mean, just last month, two, uh, two human rights defenders near Buenaventura were killed human rights defenders are still being killed um kids are still being recruited the para- these like offshoot of the paramilitary groups they still exist the thing is w- the economic drive behind it is so strong mm. so maybe the official war is over but at the moment you still have a situation where like i said before 70 percent of the world's cocaine and that's a hell of a lot of money is comes from Colombia and now they sell it to the Mexicans and there's all sorts of problems which we won't go into in Mexico mm. but um, but it's still very it's that that economic drive is still there and then that then means that the violence is still there what's your having worked there then on the ground and knowing how big a you know drug cocaine is in Australia what's your what's your opinion on on Australia's consumption of cocaine I think that everyone who ever I mean you know I, I think anyone who takes cocaine, um, buys it, whatever, should really check out 
two things. You should check out what a lab is like and what goes into it and really know what exactly you're putting into your body because it's crazy. Um, And the second is you should be aware of the violence that it creates because directly linked to to the production of that cocaine to the is from from the moment that coca leaf is is bought that brings prostitutes into a community that brings illegally armed groups then and that goes down river all the way of it being produced to exported there's all sorts of levels of violence and lives that are ruined so i don't want to sound like you know some Debbie down up it. Yeah, yeah, but, but there's actually a really bad side to yeah. this that we all have to be honest about. But I mean, on that level, like, how do you think, um, you know, Australia itself could help combat the war on drugs that is killing so many people in Colombia? You know, is there anything we could do here? Well, Colombia, uh, Australia, I mean, actually has a really high um, per capita level of people who take who who use cocaine. Like, it's actually really, really high. Mm. So, I mean, maybe just speaking more about it, like making people more aware. Mm. Um, I don't know. I just think that if people could meet the people that are impacted by this, or even if it's maybe meeting them through reading my book, um, and then maybe going and checking out. I've got some links on my website where I I interview um, Drug Enforcement Administration agents and they talk about like how cocaine is made maybe if they check that out they might be less inclined find another party for sure substance (laughs) well look thank you so much for coming on out of the box it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on now give us the details of where people can pick up your book if they want to yeah so a reluctant warrior it's available in all bookshops in australia and if it's not there you can always get them to order it um it's available on amazon or you can come to my website where you can also get like i said there's Tons of extra interviews and freebies and behind the scenes and so forth. So it's Kelly, Brooke Nichols, Brooke with an E, Nichols with a double L. Amazing. And now the last song you're going to play for us today, what have you got? I think we're going we're going for La Vamos a Tumba by Grupo Saboreo. So if you can listen to this sitting down, congratulations, because I just <laughs> love this stuff. It's called Chida Mia and it's from the Pacific coast of Colombia. And when they put on this music, nobody is sitting down. The Colombian people, while we've talked a lot about like the, the crap in, in the country, the culture is unbelievable. The music's unbelievable. The, pu- the people are such, um, you know, uh, bright, sensuous, incredible, incredible people. And, and I think this, this song kind of expresses that. Kelly, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Thanks, Up next thanks. is Lunch with Bridie Tanner. Big thanks to my producer, Nicole DiPaolo, and I'll be back next week. Mi gente,